Good morning. All right, take out your Bible. It's going to be important that you have it today, okay? So uh, we're going to cover a lot of text. I'm going to read a lot of text. We're going to do something a little bit different, just kind of read uh, a big portion of text and talk about it as we go through. So if you have your Bible, take it out. If not, the words will be on the screen. Uh, But uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to give you one. Uh, Out in the lobby, there are a stack of Bibles there. You can take one of those as our gift to you. Uh, But whether you are watching from home or you're here with us this morning, we, we want to be able to hear from God. That's why we're here. Uh, So we're going to read his word that he speaks through uh, in just a moment. Uh, We are excited today about Next Steps. I think we have about 40, almost 40 people signed up for Next Steps after the 11 o'clock service, which is amazing um, during the the pandemic especially. And and I know for some of you, I mentioned that because I know some have reached out who aren't coming in person uh, and we're interested in Next Steps. And so if that is you, uh, there should be a link at the bottom of the, the feed there. You can click on that and get the connect card. Let us know that you're interested in and next steps so that we can connect with you uh, as well. But we're excited about that. And I do want to say about the Dapper Bean as well, whether you drink coffee or not, okay, we are partnering with these people. We desire to build partnerships with different uh, businesses in our city. Go out there and grab a coffee. It's on us. Uh, and so just grab one. If you pour it out next to your car, totally fine. Don't tell them I said that. Uh, but get one. Say hi. Be friendly. Okay? We want to love people. Uh, and I know most everybody gets more excited about coffee than anything else we say. Uh, we were, Matt, Matt and I were laughing this morning because... We were talking uh, back in the hallway back there uh, that Matt made the announcement to, our, to the team of, of people serving this morning that the Dapper Bean was coming right after. It was like, hey, the Clemens Food Bank, we've given all this food to the Clemens Food Bank. We're doing all this stuff for Easter for the kids at, at Cleveland. And it was just like crickets, right? It's just like uh, we could have been like 100 people got saved this week and like we're going to have 50 baptisms this morning. And then everybody's just like, and we're going to have the Dapper Bean. And everybody's like, woo! You know, like so... Uh, so I know we get excited about coffee, support our local business, uh, and I'm just, I'm wasting a lot of time that we don't have, all right? And so Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 12, uh, we're talking about God's providence this morning and, and how do we respond? How do we uh, live in the providence of God? How do we understand that God is always and constantly working in us and working around us? How do we understand that God is moving in kind of the mundane things of life, right? We all just kind of have a life that we walk in, that we live in. We do the same thing sometimes every single day, and it can get so uh, kind of caught up in just, this is how I I roll, this is what I do, uh, that we forget to understand that God is always working, and perhaps working even just as powerfully, and sometimes even more often in our lives than he does in the, the supernatural or the miraculous. And I think a lot of times we just wait on the miraculous, And we're like, I got to see it to believe it, right? That God is going to move in this powerful way. But I think a lot of times God uses and works in supernatural ways in the mundane things of life. We see that in our text this morning. And so I'm excited for it. I want to pray for us. Um, And I pulled out another little story I don't have time for, but I pulled out um, an old Bible that I I had used for the first five or six years that uh, I, I was in ministry and preaching, and uh, I found this hymn, this poem, uh, that was actually written in 1872 by Frances uh, Havergale, uh, and she just wrote this most beautiful poem, and I want to pray it over us, and so this will be our prayer as we get started this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, speak to us that we may speak in living echoes of thy tone. As thou hast sought, so let us seek 
thy erring children lost and lone. O lead us, Lord, that we may lead the wandering and the wavering feet. O feed us, Lord, that we may feed thy hungering ones with manna sweet. O strengthen us, that while, I, that while we stand firm on the rock and strong in thee, we may stretch out a loving hand to the wrestlers with the troubled sea. O teach me, Lord, that I may teach the precious things thou dost impart, and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. O give thine own sweet rest to me, that I may speak with soothing power a word in season as from thee to weary ones this needful hour. O fill me with thy fullness, Lord, until my very heart overflow, and kindly thought of glowing word thy love to tell, thy praise to show. O use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt, and when and where, until thy blessed face I see, thy rest, thy joy, thy glory share. Father, we lift this up to you this morning. We want to hear from you. God, I pray that you would use me, even me, that you would send us out as a people who are set ablaze with your goodness and your gospel and your your life-transforming truth to those on the troubled sea. So God, this morning as we open up your word, would you speak to us in power? Would you reveal yourself to us in the way that we need to hear from you? I know that we have things going on in our lives and we desperately need you and we need you more than anything else we think we need. And God, I pray for those who may not know you this morning, whether here or watching online, God, I just pray that you would draw hearts unto you, that you would reveal yourself to be the truth, the way, and the life. And God, would many come to know you this morning all across our city as your word is proclaimed? Would you add unto your church and would you build your people up to be who you have truly called us to be? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As I said, as we've looked at the book of Acts, we've been walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is typically what we do here. uh, We have seen a lot of miraculous things. The book of Acts is full at the beginning of the book of just God doing through the power of the Holy Spirit one thing after another, just the miraculous happening. The church itself, just this miraculous movement of God where we're just seeing things that are unexplainable. But in this text, we get to see something that doesn't really seem miraculous at all. But we find that God is actually working in the natural world. That his will is actually providentially occurring as he works through what seem to be just the normal, everyday things and moments that we have and we participate in. And yes, we've seen, as we know, that God still works in miraculous ways. I've experienced it in my life. We've experienced it in the life of the church. I've prayed over people for healing and, and with, with groups of elders. And we've seen God heal people, even in this church. Uh, I, I've prayed for God to, at the, I remember, and I'll never forget, um, when we were early on starting the church just a couple of years ago, and financially just trying to figure out, like, how are we going to make this work? And it just seemed to get really muddy waters between what needs to be there for my family and what needs to be there for the church. And it would just all seem to be going to the church, right? Just we're trying to, to get everything moving and going. And, and I just pray, God, would you just provide for us? And listen to me, in one week, I got three different checks in the mail from people I didn't even know from our, the church that, that sent us. One of them was for $25,000, None of them were single digits, right? I mean, they were all in the tens of thousands, and and God just immediately provided for the church in that way. I've seen God move in some uh, incredible, miraculous ways. 
I've asked for him to speak to me and reveal things to me. I've actually, and I've heard him speak to me and reveal things to me that I'm so sure he has called me to do. And I've seen him provide in those ways. So God still does work in the miraculous. Yet, the things that I reflect on the most in my life, the times that I've seen God move in the most miraculous, supernatural ways as I would reflect back on it, it is not in those supernatural things that immediately appear to be miraculous. Those aren't even the stories that I tell the most. Those aren't the things that I reflect on the most. Those aren't the things that give me the most joy and excitement to even think about. But the times I look back and saw that God was working providentially in the everyday things of life are the stories that I most often reflect on with the fondest memories. I was uh, driving around yesterday through a neighborhood near our house my wife and I, uh, we've been renting since we moved here, and we're, we're finally kind of getting around to just like, okay, let's start this preliminary looking at houses and what's out there and all those different kinds of things. We were driving through a neighborhood, and all of a sudden it hit me that we were driving through a neighborhood that I had walked and put flyers multiple times on every single one of these doors, and now some of the houses were for sale. And, and I remembered who I was walking with, and I was walking with a young man who was the first person at Redemption Hill Church to, to place his faith in Christ. And, and it just dawned on me, just kind of the, the everyday things of life that were happening that led him and, and God used to bring him to faith. I just walked into a coffee shop that I did every single day. And Pastor Matt and I were, were going up to the counter. We did it every day. We were kind of planning uh, the church out and what's God calling us to do and how's this thing going to look. And, and I walk up to the counter and I see this young man and he asked me what I want. And I see that he has a, a semicolon tattoo. And I just kind of just said, hey, is that tattoo? That's awesome. I love your tattoos. Is that for you or is that for somebody else that you know? And if you don't know, a semicolon tattoo just means that you have decided at some point that you're going to continue life, not end it, right? So you're not putting a period on it. And, and so I, I asked him about that and I said, oh, it's for me. And, and all I said, this, I have done this a hundred times. If you want to know, I go up, I order a grande Americano, no cream, no sugar. So if you're ever there, you think of me, that's what I want. So I've done this a hundred times. I walked up to the counter. I just asked that question. I typically try to talk to the person that's there. If they're able to, to talk in that moment, it's not too busy. And, and he said, it's for me. And I, all I said was, I would love to know about the hope that you found, that you decided to get that tattoo instead of a period. And he said, oh man, he, got, he lit up. He was like, oh, I'd love to do that. And on his break that day, he comes over and sits down next to us. Matt and I talked to him for a long time. We started a relationship. At the end of the conversation, all he said was, I need some wholesome friends. Like I need just like a Christian frat party. Like I just, and, and he came to my daughter's uh, three-year-old birthday party that night. All right, he's the only one there. He photobombed our family photo. It's still there to this day. I laugh about it all the time. Uh, but through this long process of, of dealing with a whole bunch of just crazy things in his life, here I am. I'm just going to get a coffee like I do. I had done a hundred times before. I did it every single morning. He's just showing up to work to try to pay his bills and pay for the vices that he has in his life. And it starts a relationship in the everyday things of life where God was providentially working to bring about the supernatural of salvation. And it's the thing that I think about more than anything as is, 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 is I'm going through life and God reminds me of just these average moments that I'm doing all the time in my life that when I'm intentionally living in God and who I am in Him, He uses in supernatural ways. 
And, and we see that in our text this morning. God uses Paul providentially. He uses those who do not even believe in him providentially to bring about his will of the gospel spreading, of the church multiplying, of Paul going from Jerusalem to Rome. And this young man, as he came to faith and was baptized, and I got to talk to him not too long ago, and just he told me about all that God was doing in his life, I was just so encouraged, and it just reminded me that God is always working in us, and he is always working around us. And Paul's message this morning gives us an understanding as the church of what we need to intentionally be proclaiming and revealing in everything that we do so that God is providentially working in the mundane things of our world to bring about the supernatural that we might reveal there's something greater than anything in this, in this world and on this earth. And, and I've been convicted this last week that, that most of us, even in the church, we're going to see this as we get into this text that many of us, even in the church, we, we just kind of let the mundane waste away. It's just kind of like this is the normal things of life, and I'm just dreaming about the trips I can take to get away from the mission field when God has actually called us to have the greatest joy in what he's calling us to do where we live, work, and play on a daily basis. That some of the most thrilling moments you will ever experience are happening when you go to the coffee shop and order a coffee. When you go to the park and you sit there at the bench with another parent and you watch your kids play, when you go to pick your kids up at school, when you go to the gym, we go into those moments thinking this is just another day, another time, another moment where I'm accomplishing something to get me to something else. When God is crying out, I'm providentially working in you and around you right now. And there are some thrilling moments, the most exciting moments of your life. And so I want to encourage you as we get into this that today when you go home and you just kind of go about your average Sunday, it could be the most exciting day of your life. If we intentionally walk in what God is doing and what God is revealing and, and reveal everything that he tells us to reveal. So we see that in this text as, as Paul just Runs into some Jewish guys that are doing the same thing that the Jewish guys always do. We've got a trial here that has happened thousands of times before. A ruler who's been in power for a very long time. The empire of Rome is just going on as the empire goes on. It's just another day. It's just another proceeding. This is just another morning that Paul is getting up and being persecuted for the gospel truth. It just seems like everything is so normal, but we see that God is in control of every moment. That God is moving and providentially working in everything around us. Even in the confusion or the times of clarity, even in the sorrows that we see and the trials that we face and the joys that we have, even when everything seems like it's being controlled and, and we're kind of marching along the way that we feel like we should or everything seems to be falling apart and as abnormal as it possibly can be, God is in control. And our joy is in him and knowing who he is. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, as I said, turn to Acts chapter 23. In just a second, we're going to walk through it together. That's all we're going to do is read it and walk through it. It's going to be very simple this morning. But before we do that, just to kind of bring us up to speed, we have seen Paul get to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Paul's been on three missionary journeys. He's said he needs to get back to Jerusalem. He's taking some, some financial help there for the church, which he's done six different times now. 
He's brought back financial help for the church in Jerusalem. He wants to encourage the brothers, even though everybody around him is telling him not to go. Persecution's awaiting you. He knows that that's what God's called him to do. We've constantly seen, even though Paul's not perfect, even though he struggles, even though I guarantee you he thinks to himself a lot of times, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Where are you, God? What is going on here? And all the difficulties that he faced, if you just put yourself in that, we ask those questions over a lot less things than Paul was facing. Like, I don't think any of us have faced what Paul's going to face in this text, that 40 men are, th- are threatening to kill him and have made an oath that they're not going to eat or drink until they do it. I don't think that's happened to any of us. And, and so I know Paul's struggling with all those things, but he knows what is ultimately important and what God has called him to do. And when we understand what is ultimate, then suddenly other things in our lives that we talked about become more and more clear. We understand what to do. And so Paul has gotten to Jerusalem. Persecution absolutely comes, just as God said it would. But what we begin to see is that God uses this as an opportunity for Paul to tell his story in a way he never would have been able to. One of Paul's bucket list things is that he would be able to proclaim the gospel truth to all of his Israelite people. And here we see through persecution, God giving him the opportunity to proclaim the gospel truth to thousands and thousands of his people at the temple. That would not have happened outside of of God providentially using this persecution that's happening in Paul that feels like this should not happen if I love you, God. But God's using it to reveal himself. And because Paul knows what is ultimately important is God and his glory and revealing him in all that we are and leveraging everything I am for his glory. And that is actually what brings me joy. Then he says, man, whatever may come, if it advances the gospel truth, that is where I want to be. And so God uses even this moment for Paul to give one of the greatest speeches in history. I know we don't typically think of it that way, but God just, Paul's revealing the gospel truth to thousands and thousands of his people. And I don't even know if Paul knew it was that important in the moment, but God uses it and he's going to use it to get him to Rome for the gospel to continue to spread all because Paul is intentionally living in it out his faith. He's intentionally seeking, what would God have for me? And what does God call me to do? And every moment that I find myself in, how do I use this platform for the glory of God? That's his one question. And I'm sure it was hard. and I'm sure he struggled. But listen to me, God even used this time. At the end of our text, we see that Felix, the governor, leaves Paul in prison for two years. And during that two years, that's when we actually get this book, the book of Acts. See, God's providentially working through everything that's happening in our lives. I want to challenge us this morning to understand and realize that. That God's always working in you and around you. And if we're intentionally seeking to give him glory, then some of the greatest moments of our lives will come and some of the most mundane things where we actually see God bring the supernatural into the everyday things of life. And people come to faith and it transforms our own hearts. And, and listen, you need to know also that God is working in you now to prepare you for those moments. Don't just think that I'm going to stand up in that moment and be who God has called me to be in that difficult moment in time. If we're not preparing our hearts, then all we'll want to do there is complain. 
And so we need to be a people who are, are seeking God now, are in prayer, are in his word, and, and seeking and leaning into him. And that will be what prepares us to stand firm in what is ultimate and have clarity in the difficult times that God may providentially put us in for his glory and our joy. And so I don't ever want us to think that prayer isn't powerful enough to me, for me to give a few minutes to this morning. Like God's word isn't good enough for me to, to take some time from doing this thing I think I really need to spend some time reading what he has said to me. I don't want you to think that at all because what you need to understand is that's actually preparing your heart to be everything that God has called you to be in the everyday things of life. And, and then you will see him do the supernatural things in the mundane. So prepare your heart. Paul has prepared his heart. He's leaning into God. He knows what is ultimate, and he comes to this moment where he proclaims the gospel truth, and all of a sudden, everybody kind of pounces on him, beats him, wants to kill him, puts false accusations on him. The, the Claudius Lysias, the tribune, has to pull him aside, take him into the barracks to try to figure all of this out, and that's where we kind of end up. God reveals himself to Paul and says, hey, don't worry, take courage, I'm with you, you're going to get to Rome. So again, Paul knows exactly what to do, but, but this is where we are. Paul is in prison, and God is using even this moment with him in prison to protect him and get him to Rome. God's going to use the Roman government and their dime to get him to Rome. And so God's providentially working in all of these things to fulfill what he has called Paul to do. And Paul's walking for the glory of God in everything he does. All right, so look at this text together. Verse 12. I want us to see this. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves. So this is when Paul is in prison. They bound themselves to an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, so this is their plan, to bring him down to see you as they were going to determine his case, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. So call Paul back. And when, when we are ready to kill him, uh, before he comes near. And so call Paul in. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to eat or do anything until he gets here. Call him to more exactly look at this case. And when he walks by, we'll be ready to pounce and we will be ready to kill him. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but listen to me. Religion will make you do the most foolish things outside of Jesus. Like, uh, Paul's going to be called a plague in, in a few moments that we will read. And listen to me, all religion is a plague outside of the grace of Christ. It just perpetuates sin and judgment and condemnation. Where Jesus actually comes and takes by, by his grace, he works on, on our behalf for us and he takes on our sin. He takes on our condemnation, sets us free from having to live up to a law, but being able to freely walk in the law that he has laid before us, that we might know freedom and walk in him. But if you're just religious and you're trying to achieve and accomplish and try harder to do better, and you're judging the entire world by how you have laid out the rules and, and how well you are doing compared to everybody else, then you will begin to disdain people. You will begin to hate people. You will begin to judge people. You will begin to think you're better than people, and you will be a fool, and you will do the most foolish of things. 
Let's believe in a law that says thou shalt not kill. And let's then make an oath before God that he would curse us if we do not kill this man. You will do foolish things and irrational things in the name of what you think is right outside of God's grace. That goes for philosophies of life. It goes for your own irreligion in a way that you might find everything that you long for, and it goes for every religion. Christianity is not just another religion. It is God saving his people. But this is what we see. They want to kill him. But then look at this. This is, this is crazy. Verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister. What? Like, Paul has a family. This is the only place that we actually hear, and they're in Jerusalem. Paul's sister heard of their ambush, uh, sister's um, son heard of the ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions, which he would be able to do because he's a Roman citizen. So he could actually call a centurion over to the jail cell. The centurion would have to go. And, and if it's a reasonable request, then they would have to fulfill it. So he calls the centurion over and says, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand. So he's a younger man. He's probably in his early teens. Probably wouldn't take an older man by the hand. All right. So we get kind of a little bit of Paul's nephew's age there. He's a younger guy. And he set aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of these men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for, the con- uh, for consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So the tribune now, God is providentially going to work through this everyday thing of life to protect Paul, to get Paul where he wants Paul to be. All right, And so God is working providentially through all of these things. So these men who have taken this oath, listen to me, they're going to be waiting a long time. Right Now, they probably did not die because if you read the Mishnah, some of the Jew- Jewish laws, uh, there's actually a caveat in there that says if you make an oath, a curse like this, and put it on yourself before God, and then you are incapable of completing it, then you're off the hook. All right, And so these men were just kind of idly threatening uh, to take their own lives. They're just saying, hey, we're really serious and we really want to do this, but they're not going to be able to. God protects Paul. Verse 23, then they called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea the third hour of the night. So here's Paul, one man. Take Centurions have 100 soldiers each. So take your 100 soldiers each, 200. Then get 200 more horsemen and uh, 70 spear. We want 470 dudes who are trained to transport this one man. All right, so... Uh, Claudius Lysias, he really wants to cover his own tail, all right? He wants to make sure Paul gets there. He's a Roman citizen. This is going to look bad on me. I've got to listen to Paul's nephew because Paul's a Roman citizen. I've got to get him to safety. I've got to get him to a place where the Jewish people aren't the, the vast majority of the population, but we can still kind of control everything that's going on here. So I need to get him to Caesarea, and I'm going to put as many people on it as possible to make sure he gets there. So this is what we see Claudius Lysias do, the tribune do. Verse 24, 
also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And Felix, the governor, took over for Pontius Pilate. All right, so we're going to see that Felix, he understands what's happened with Jesus. He knows what's going on. He's very aware of everything. He says uh, later on that I'm familiar with the way. And so Felix took over for Pontius Pilate. He was not a very nice man. He was a slave early on in his life. His brother was a slave who actually got out of being a slave and and convinced uh, his brother Felix to be able to have this type of role. And he's put here in Caesarea after Pontius Pilate. And so it's said that he ruled like a slave, but he was a governor. And so he was just a cruel person. All right. And, And we see that in many things of his life. He was unable to really control his passions and his desires. And then he wrote a letter to him to this effect, and he kind of writes here in these next couple of verses everything that's taking place, but he omits a couple of things just to protect himself, all right? He doesn't say that I almost flogged this guy. Um, He just kind of says, hey, here's kind of the gist of the story. We see that in verses 26 through 30, and then in verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to... uh, and to Patras, which is a military base 37 miles from Jerusalem, another 25 miles to Caesarea. So they're taking a little bit of a break. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So Paul's still protected, but he's kind of out of trouble. When they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked, what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from uh, Cilicia, he said, I will give a hearing to you. So people are typically tried in their own hometowns. And so Paul is from this area. So Felix is saying, okay, I I can oversee your trial. When the accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So he's, Paul's kept in prison, but he's kept in the palace. So it's, it's not a bad prison to be in, but he's still in prison. For chapter 24. Now look at Paul's courage here. Look at Paul and how he's steadfast in the gospel truth and, and how he speaks and what he does and how he knows that God is working. After five days, the highest priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen from uh, one was Tertullus, and he is actually the prosecutor, and he has a Greek name, uh, so he would get along with uh, the Romans pretty well, but he also is of Jewish belief, uh, and so the high priest Ananias, he's like, hey, I'm going to bring this prosecutor, this hot shot, we're going to get this done, we're going to get rid of this Jesus guy, and Paul represents him, so we are going to get rid of Paul. And so they laid before the governor the case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, now listen to what he does. We get a little bit of a contrast between what we need to do in the world to get what we think we need and want, and then what Paul does in the gospel truth. So Tertullus, he really sucks up at first, right? None of this is true about Felix. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace. Let me just like butter you up a little bit here, Felix. And since your foresight, much excellent, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere. We accept with this with all gratitude. Hear us, Felix, Mr. Powerful Felix. Verse 4, but to detain you no further. So we don't want to take up much of your time. You can just quickly just kind of execute this guy if you want to. He says, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man to be a plague 
one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world. And we see these three things that he lays. And then uh, in verse 6, oh, and he says he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Don't worry. And then verse 7, you get the key to all of your life. Look at verse 7 in your Bible. Look for it. It's not there, right? This is the weirdest place in all the scripture. There's no verse 7. So you just missed out on the key to your life. Um, but some of the, uh, the earlier manuscripts that we have found omitted what we had in verse 7. And so they just took it out and kept it 6 and then straight to 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So he puts these three things on him. And, and says, this is what Paul has. Don't take much time. We all uh, confess this is what Paul has done. So you just bring charges on him. You just charge him. Then verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him uh, to, to speak, Paul replied. And Paul does not suck up. He's respectful. He just says, knowing that you've done this for many years, you've been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully give a defense. I'm full of the Spirit. I desire to give a defense. I desire to take this from a civil law thing to a theological gospel thing. And I'm going to make this about faith, not a rule that I have broken. So verse 11, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up into the worship in Jerusalem. So he says, there's no way that I've been causing all these riots. I've only been there for 12 days. Seven of those days, I've been purifying myself for the temple to bring alms to the temple. And so he says, I've only been here for 12 days. I'm worshiping in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you that, that what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down before the law and written in the prophets. Super important, remember that. Verse 15, having a hope in God with these men themselves, except that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I love God and I desire to love men. I believe everything in God's word. And so here's what he's saying. You say that I'm a plague and I'm causing riots. I'm not. I've only been there for 12 days and I'm actually coming to the temple to purify myself. You say that I'm a leader of this sect. I'm not. I believe every word of scripture in the Old Testament. I hold to every law and I hold hope in God. And I know that the fulfillment of everything that you believe is found in Jesus Christ. And so I'm not coming against you to bring division and disunity. I'm bringing the fulfillment in Jesus Christ that Christ did come and live and die. And he rose from the grave and his resurrection is proof that he is the one that we have been waiting on. I'm not against you, I'm for you, and I want you to know Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I do all that I can with everywhere that I am to have a good conscience that I am loving God and I am loving you. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to the, my nation and to present offerings. As we said, he did six different times, saying not only am I not here to cause division, I'm here to bless I'm here for this city. I'm here for these people. I desire and long for God to be known. And I'm, I'm, I'm meeting needs. While I was doing this, they found me purifying the temple. And without a crowd or tumult, 
But the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here, for they are the ones who accuse me. They should have, if they have anything against me to say. This was actually Roman law, that the accuser should be there at the trial. saying they're not there because you guys have nothing against me. And so Ananias just came, the priest, to try to overpower everything that's going here so that you and, and him, Felix, can kind of have this moment of power together and kind of give a little nod to each other. But there's nothing here. If there was, they would have found it in the trial that I had there. But those men who accuse me aren't even here. Other than this one thing, he says, I have actually done, that I cried out while standing among them. It is the respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial for this today. So here's what Paul says, what I'm actually on trial for, because I have not done any of these things. And if it were true, my accusers would have been here. They would have laid it out. They would have found me guilty there. They have just brought me here to get rid of Jesus. The real problem here is not what I have done, but it's Jesus and his resurrection. It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So he makes it a theological issue. And not only that, he says, but all of us are going to have to answer to Christ and what he has done. He is the judge of us all. He is the one that we must stand before. And if we place our faith in Christ and his death and his resurrection, then we too rise in him are made new. We have new life. We have a new identity. We have new purpose. We are set free. We understand what is most important. We know and have clarity in how to walk in everything, and we are given courage in the midst of what we call fear. It's all found in Jesus, and this is what he's laying out before Felix, that Christ is the real issue here, and he is the actual Savior of us all. And if we place our faith in him, we will be made new, but there will be a judgment for all. It says, this is the actual issue. And then, and then look at Felix. Felix doesn't really know what to do with this. He's just kind of like, man, I, I'm not sure here what is going on because if what you're saying is true, then Jesus is not just a good teacher that I heard about from Pilate. Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just somebody who did some cool things. He's not somebody who just had compassion on people. He was not just a good teacher. But if this is true, Jesus was God. If this is true, then, then Jesus and his resurrection means everything and that he really is everything you're saying that he is. So if this is true, then Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so how does Felix respond? He's kind of just like, here's all this news that I've just gotten about the resurrection, and, and, and I'm not really sure what to do. And so what he does is delay. He doesn't actually respond. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Paul. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get Claudius Lysias here, and, and we'll talk this over, and then we'll figure out what to do. But Paul, you have to go back into the prison for right now. So he just delays. And then the last couple of verses, here's what we see together. Felix actually calls him several days later to, because his wife wants to know about him. Now, his wife was somebody who was only about 16 years old. He, was, uh, he saw her and said that she was extremely beautiful. And so she was already married. He was already married. He drops his wife. He steals her from her husband. And so we kind of have this issue here where she's in her second marriage. He's in his actual third marriage. And he just stole her away because he could. She is a, a Jew. She's actually the granddaughter of King Agrippa I. And so her grandfather is who sent um, the, the, the army to Bethlehem to kill all the babies. 
all right? And, and so she's got a history here with, with understanding the way of understanding who Jesus is, but she's not very clear on it. So both Felix and her want him to come to them and share with them what's actually taking place. So God is stirring in them providentially. This should have been an easy case, but God's doing something in their hearts. So look what happens. Paul gives three truths. I'll go over these extremely quickly that we must be about as the church if we are going to see the supernatural revealed in the natural. If we miss these three things, then listen to me. We become, as a church, a sideshow. We lose all of our power. And, and I'm nervous that when we look at these three things and we look at the church big seed today, we are missing this. Therefore, we have in many ways been defined as things that we are not actually supposed to be defined as as the church. We've been looked at in the community as things we're not actually supposed to be looked at like if you just ask a general person in our community, what is the church to you? You would get all sorts of different kinds of answers, and a whole lot of them would be negative. And these are the centerpieces that we must focus on of the gospel. If we want to see transformation, and we want our lives to be thrilling in every single situation that we are in. So here's what Paul says. It says he reasoned. He's not just throwing out some truth and saying, hey, I hope that you just believe this. But he's saying, I've actually thought through this. I've reasoned through this. I've weighed everything that God has showed me and everything that I've seen of Jesus. And I've reasoned in my own heart and mind these things. And then he talks to him about things that, that Felix struggles with. See, Felix is an unrighteous person. Every single one of us, none of us is righteous. No, not one, we have all sinned against God. We are all incapable of being who we are called to be and created to be in Christ. And so Paul wants to talk to Felix where he is. You're unrighteous. And he tells him and reasons with him about righteousness. He reasons with him about self-control because he knows that Felix just kind of goes with his heart and does whatever he wants to do. And if I see a pretty girl, I get a pretty girl. And if I want that thing, I take that thing. And I am known as a ruler who is not very nice and takes extremes to get what he wants and longs for. And so Paul says, hey, I want to tell you about righteousness and I want to tell you about self-control. And I'm going to tell you about the coming judgment. That you, governor, are not the ultimate judge and you can sit there and wonder what's actually going on. And I could be the one that you are ruling over here on earth. But I have the courage because I know the ultimate judge. See, these are the three things that, that we must speak into and, and, and be revealing all around in our community as the church today. And I think this is why Paul lays this out. Because if we lose this, we lose everything. So it says he reasons he reasons about righteousness. He reasons about self-control. He reasons about the coming judgment because righteousness is something every single one of us longs for. How do I actually have justice and truth and purpose and identity? How am I right with God? That's the ultimate question to everything that we long for and ask in our lives, even if we don't know it. That might not be the actual way that we ask the question, but when we're searching and seeking for in life for fulfillment and joy, what we're ultimately asking is, how am I right with my creator? How do I figure this whole thing out? And the only way that we can know that is to know the word of God. 
So Paul points to the word of God. Back in verses 14 and 15, he says, I believe everything that is laid out by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God and his truth. And I believe he walks Felix through the Old Testament and points him to Jesus in all the things that scripture says. And he says, the way that we know righteousness is to know what God has said to us about himself and what he has done. That Jesus really did live and die and rise, and he really did fulfill all the Old Testament. Let me just ask you this, this question this morning. Do you believe everything that God has said? Do you actually believe everything that God has said? Because even in the church today, what I see so often is that we try to define our own righteousness and judge God based on what he has and hasn't said that we agree with rather than judging righteousness on what God has said and revealed and living in that truth. We struggle so much today as a church to judge God on our own standards, our own desires, our own cultural beliefs. Seeking something to worship that agrees with our own hearts and wants. And if it changes tomorrow, that's okay. If a different culture thinks a different way, that's okay. And listen to me, it's killing us. It's killing our culture, but it's also killing the church from the inside out. We cannot be a people who proclaim Christ and say, you know what? I look at scripture and I believe some of that and I don't believe some of the other things. I struggle with how our culture says this and God's word says that. And so I'm going to go the way of our culture so that I fit in. This is how we see Felix actually respond. But Paul says we must know all of the word of God and we must believe it all to have the righteousness that we long for. Righteousness is known. Justice is known. Purity is known. Identity is known in the word of God and knowing it all. And what's missing in the church today is not us shifting away from what God has said and getting involved with what the culture believes now and transitioning what God has said into what the culture says now so that it's more palatable for everybody to hear. What's missing from the church today is understanding that the word of God is sufficient. That the word of God is everything that we need to know for righteousness and salvation and life. That the word of God is from him and it's his way of speaking to us and it is living and active and it transforms hearts. It's everything that our souls long for is this truth. And if you're fighting with it, I, I get it. There are things in this word that I struggle with, but we have to do the hard work of fighting to align our hearts and repenting and surrendering to what God has said, not trying to transition and transform and and edit what God has said to us. We have to be a people who fight to live in the truth of Christ, who desire it above all other things. And if we want to be used in him as his body, if we want to be used of him in our everyday things of life where we live, work, and play, if we want to experience the joy of doing all that God has called us to in his community, we must be a people who embrace and love the word of God, all of it, even when it's hard. And listen to me, I know you can say right now, Brandon, nobody wants to hear that today. I get it all the time. All the time, don't talk about that, do this, we should be this way. I don't know what God's word says there, but let's twist it. But listen to me, I know you don't want to hear it. 
In general, Neil, Neil Poulsen wrote a book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he said there are three things, if you want to be a, a, an effective communicator today to the church, that you have to do. He says people don't want to be told that they're supposed to do stuff. So don't, don't tell them God's word changes or transforms them. Life is tough, and they don't want to feel like you're making them feel bad because the gospel calls them to something new. That's number two. And then number three, avoid exposition of texts that are sensitive. All we do here is walk through texts that are sensitive because all of God's word is offensive because the gospel's offensive. And listen to me, the church has to be about teaching righteousness and self-control and judgment. There are three things that the church totally and radically does not talk about or mention today because we're told left and right that people won't come if they hear this. But listen, the church loses its power if we don't talk about this. It loses the power of the gospel to transform and change hearts. Christianity is not Christianity without these truths and believing all of God's word. It's just a powerless joke. And and we're all here for pointless reasons. See, this is the weapon that God gives us in his armor. Take it up. Learn it. Read it. Why would we lay down the weapon that God gives us or why would we try to dull it? We're fighting in a world that is against the gospel, but needs the gospel truth at every turn. And what they long for, we can provide for them. And if we intentionally live and dwell in it and fight in our hearts where we have issues with it to align with God and what he has said, then God will begin to use us supernaturally in the mundane things of life. Because this is what people actually long for, whether they know it or not. It's the truth their ears long to hear. And in that truth, we can begin to become self-controlled because it's not about us anymore. The gospel sets me free from needing to gain and needing to seek and needing to pursue because I have everything I long for in Christ. And therefore, I don't have to follow my every desire. I don't have to look at as Felix at that pretty girl and say, I want that and I need that to be happy. But I can say, I'm happy and I have everything that I need in Christ. And so I can honor him with my life. See, we can begin to deny self because we understand that our desires are not everything. That our desires often lead us into places we don't want to even be. So the gospel actually allows us to be self-controlled. That's why Paul points this out and then finally says there's a coming judgment. Listen, every single one of us will be judged by God. Whether we believe in him or whether we do not. And if we do not, we will spend eternity separated from him. But if we do, we will spend an eternity with his inheritance as his sons and his daughters. In complete community with him where every tear will be wiped away and everything that we long for will be made known. So let me ask you this morning, let me close with this. How do you respond? How do you respond? Felix was afraid and he delayed He procrastinated. He said, oh, I'm going to send you back into the jail and I'll just keep bringing you before me and and, and we'll have this conversation for a couple of years here, but I'm not actually going to make a decision. I'll just keep hearing it. I'll just keep hearing it more and more. Are you procrastinating with the truth of God? Are you saying tomorrow? Felix also says, all I want is money. I keep bringing Paul before me so that his friends will bribe me to, to free him. Do we just deny God for the material things of the world? Not understanding that the creator is everything that we long for. And it gives us a proper understanding of everything that God has created. And we don't have to be enslaved to money and materials and things and relationships. 
Are we more worried about pleasing people than God? See, Felix says, I left him in jail when I transitioned into out of government and Festus came in. I left him there to please the Jewish people. Do we care more about pleasing people than we care about pleasing God? Or finally, do we repent and believe and go? We can be set free in him to live in the things that God has called us to, where we live, work, and play, and see the miraculous come into the mundane. If we're a people of his word, if we're a people of holiness, if we're a people who live understanding that there is a coming judgment, but that in Christ we have salvation.